0: and in speed in order to get better at running. Obviously, running does not have an opposite-the-court type of opponent. It's more of an individual type of sport, if you will. And yet, the opponent that I find myself sometimes facing is the opponent of myself. That mental wall that I sometimes hit that tells me I cannot keep going another mile. And yet, I know that I've got to keep pushing myself in order to get better, to get faster, to go farther endurance is required, patience is required, perseverance and strategy are all required as well. And all of these characteristics certainly serve as adjectives and characteristics of the final chapter of our family photo album, as Trey has alluded to in our study of church history from the Reformation up into the modern missions movement. You know, we who are followers of Christ understand as we've studied these six weeks why it's important to look back upon who has come before us, that we may follow in their footsteps in those good things that they have laid groundwork for us and foundation for us in, and yet also to look forward to where we are headed, as we'll look to this morning. We'll turn to the modern missions movement uh, this morning. Certainly these adjectives and um, characteristics of perseverance and endurance certainly make up also those great men and women, as we'll look to here in a moment, of the modern missions movement. But before we jump in, I want to kind of give a brief overview and some background, really in three areas that kind of set up for us the modern missions movement. You see those there on your introduction, on your outline. First is global exploration. Uh, you'll see, really, from the, in the turn of the 19th century, a movement and a shift from looking to Spain and Portugal to the French and the British empires. Uh, so you'll see a shift in focus there. Second is technology. You'll see a shift and, really, an advance in transportation the opportunity to be able to uh, move about throughout the known world at the time. And then finally, evangelism is another key proponent uh, in that as well, giving some background as we've studied in the Great Awakenings, those great preachers uh, who have gone before us, George Whitfield and others, uh, who brought a renewed sense, not only the proclamation of the word, but also evangelism too. As you know, as you studied missions uh, before, the great century was marked by many men and women, uh, very well-known missionaries and movements that we'll consider this morning in the final part of our family photo album. Men like William Carey, Adoniram and Ann Judson, David Livingston, Lottie Moon, Hudson Taylor, Donald McGavern, even a movement like the student volunteer movement. And we'll see also throughout the World Missions Movement, a literal movement, as we'll look at here in just a few moments, a geographical movement from the coastlands to the inlands and then on to the frontier where the unreached people groups lie. So let's dive in this morning. First, we'll look at uh, great men and women of the World Missions Movement. Our second point, uh, we'll study the geographical movements from coastlands all the way to the frontier, and then the great eras that have the Great Commission as its aim. First, let's look at, you see there, William Carey. William Carey, father of the modern missions movement. He's probably one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known, missions figures. He was born in England in 1761. He was a shoemaker by trade and certainly a a pastor by vocation, so he was bivocational. He was self-educated. He had a love for languages and an affinity for geography and cultures. In in fact, he made a world map out of shoe leather and put it there on his wall so that he could study different countries of the world and and different languages, different uh, geographies, and to know where it is uh, that God was calling him. And yet, one of the key things about Kerry is that he sensed a void up until that point in the evangelical church regarding the Great Commission. One of the uh, theological tendencies that kind of was under underlying Kerry's day was this hyper-Calvinistic tendency. To kind of put that in, in layman's terms, that is that people believe that if God elected people unto salvation, what was the point then of evangelism? What was the point of missions? And yet, carry's um, proposition would be that the Great Commission was not just for the apostles, but also for the church today. In fact, uh, these hyper-Calvinistic tendencies um, would glue people's mouths shut and nail their feet to the ground, except that is when they stood up against Carey in this famous quote to say, if God will win the heathen or save the heathen, he will do it without your help or ours. And in in response, Carey wrote, Um, This little book called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. And that book was even a little bit longer than the title, though not by much, 78 pages to be exact. And the thrust of this book was, again, to show that the Great Commission was not just for the apostles, but also for the church today. Kerry is quoted as saying, It seems as if many thought the commission was sufficiently put In execution by what the apostles and others have done, that we have enough to do to attend to the salvation of our own countrymen, and that if God intends the salvation of heathen, he will in some way or other bring them to the gospel or the gospel to them. It is thus that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. And his biblical basis for his inquiry, for his little pamphlet, was Isaiah 54, verses 2 through 3, in which he coined that famous phrase, expect great things of God, attempt great things for God. In fact, in 1792, that Baptist Missionary Alliance or society that Carey helped found would focus their reach on India. And they put out a a clearing call of who would go. And Carey agreed to go. And yet he said, I will go down to India but you must hold the ropes. I will go down, but you must hold the ropes. And this is a great place to really stop and consider our role as a partnering church, as UBC, is we hold the ropes for other people, for our partners on the field, both through financial support, prayer support, sending teams, even the extent to to where and with whom we partner. Oftentimes, uh, we'll see in missions circles going broader, and yet the depth of partnership is not as deep. And so we here at UBC want to continue to seek to go deeper with fewer, uh, such that our partnerships have deep roots that go down. And yet sometimes holding the ropes for those partners on the field may not be the most exciting of missions endeavors. It may not be to the extreme types of settings or setups in terms of mission, short-term mission trips. It may mean going over and babysitting the kids of our partners on the field so that they can have a date night, something they maybe haven't done in quite some time. Or it may be holding a spiritual retreat uh, for our workers so that they can have the word poured over them and to be able to meet with other um, folks on the field that speak their same language and that they're able to really get personal and vulnerable with, to be able to dialogue with and to engage with. So the question begs to be asked, where has God led you to be a part of holding the ropes as you play your part in praying and sending and giving and in going here at UBC. Something to consider. And really to take maybe that next step. Uh, in considering where God has called you. In that endeavor. Certainly something too that's known about William Carey's life. Is that his wife Dorothy was not called to the mission field. Like he was. In fact it's said that Dorothy was. Kind of drugged in the mission field if you will. Kicking and screaming. And so many people question. Whether or not Carey should have gone in fact. Because his wife didn't have that same uh, call on her life um, wasn't set apart in the same way and yet i think we need to ask the question i want to ask you guys this morning do we all have the same specific role to play in the great commission particularly in global missions do we all have the same role to play do you think that we are all called to cross cultures in the global sense cross geographic boundaries cross language boundaries in taking this great commission around the world so if we've got some mic runners around, I'd love to get just a few thoughts this morning from some of you. Do we all have the same role to play in the Great Commission? Any thoughts?
1: Crossing international boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think you can be a, a missionary where you're at. Sure. Sure and be just as effective.
0: Other thoughts? Andrew.
1: Um, I would say that while we can all be missionaries in our own sense, we also have to have people who need to finance the missionaries, those who need to pray for the missionaries and those who need to train the missionaries. So in that sense, I don't know if we're all called to go to
0: international missions, but we all have a purpose in serving on the missions team. Absolutely. Yeah, David Sills, uh, that book that I handed out, Intro to Global Missions, he also wrote a book called The Missionary Call. Uh, I know that kind of goes against a little bit of of what Brad uh, spoke to a few weeks ago in terms of the idea of calling. Certainly, we don't see that idea of calling in terms of vocation uh, in the Bible And yet, there's a sense of setting apart. I mean, to some, God has um, quote-unquote called people or set people apart to global missions, uh, to cross cultural boundaries, um, to take the gospel across uh, countries. And I think you guys are right that that spoke to that. You know, we all have a role to play in the Great Commission. Certainly, that is the mandate that Christ has given all of us, not just some of us, not just those whom he has uh, set apart to go to uh, other nations. uh, But certainly, we are all Um, commissioned to make disciples of all nations and yet for some that's going to mean crossing those cultural boundaries and yet we are as Andrew said called to send people um, to the mission field to support them and so different seasons and stations of life may alter uh, how it is that we are um, set apart to do that whether as a sender or a goer and yet I think we all have a role to play in that great commission particularly in the global sense whether as a sender or as a goer so you may be wondering, you know, how do we as a church focus on um, such topics as uh, communicating the gospel in a culturally appropriate way as we think about um, Carey's greatest contribution uh, being the Serampore Agreement. Uh, as, you, as you study Kerry's um, life, uh, he kind of wrote another another volume called The Serampore Agreement, which talked about um, communicating the gospel in contextually appropriate ways, translating scripture such that the people that Uh, read it, could hear it, understand it, believe it, Um, leading a Christ-like lifestyle, preaching Christ alone, developing indigenous national leaders. And so how do we as a church do that? Well, certainly I think uh, even as we look to who we support and where we support, we want to make sure that uh, we're looking at certain um, principles and certain guidelines, both in what is our relationship with our partners on the field? What is the theological stance with which uh, those folks stand in conviction under Uh, What types of ministry are they involved in? Are they involved in unreached people group uh, ministry? Are they involved in church planting? Are they involved in orphan care? But also, I think, even as we look at certain things like how we communicate the gospel, are we raising up leaders um, to follow behind us? Are we doing that not only on a global level, on a church-wide level, but also on a personal level, too? Uh, Are we emulating Christ? Are we self-replicating ourselves as a faithful disciple-maker? Uh, as Carey and, and many of these others, as we'll look at today, did. So that's William Carey's life. Second, let's look at Adoniram Judson. A haystack, not the most likely place that you would think the modern missions movement uh, would come out of. And yet in 1806, we see a group of guys gathering around a haystack, um, taking actually uh, a cover from a storm in 1806 at Williams College in, in Massachusetts. Adoniram Judson came out of this, and it was two weeks after his marriage to Anne in 1812 that they set sail for India. And yet, their stay in India in Calcutta didn't last long. They were kind of ousted there by the authorities, and they moved to Burma in 1813. And yet, we see, uh, for those that have read uh, Judson's biography, it was a tough first six years. You see that uh, Judson faced isolation from other believers. He had difficult, difficulty in language. For seven years, he faithfully labored until he was able to see one person converted to Christianity. And yet, he worked tirelessly to translate the Bible in the Burmese language in 1840. And that um, translation is actually still in print today. And yet, the Judsons continued to face hardship after hardship. They lost children on the field. Anne herself died on the field. Judson was imprisoned during this time. He married twice more, Adoniram did. And he lost three more children on the field. He himself actually died aboard a ship. And so I think understanding just even the sacrifice in Judson's life um, that he had to face, he and Anne both, um, as a result of counting the cost to take the gospel uh, to the Burmese people. So that's a little bit of Adoniram's life. Third, Hudson Taylor, uh, one who I'm personally fond of, named my son uh, after Hudson Taylor. He was a Methodist physician. Uh, who went to China in 1854 upon the appointment of the China Evangelical Society. He resigned from that post, and yet he remained in China because he was committed. We see here a movement, really, from the coastlands now to the inlands. Hudson Taylor uh, founded the Chinese Inland Mission Society. He, like Kerry and like Judson before him, faced great opposition. He was told that he would carry the blood of those young people that he tried to send to the mission field, to the interior. Faced great opposition, and yet he was assured by God that you are not sending young people into the interior of China. I am. And with the focus on the inlands, he founded that China Inland Mission in in uh, China. And it was in 1882 that he saw the goal reached of putting missionaries in every province of the interior of China. And yet what was unique about uh, Taylor's ministry was that he wanted to see the China Inland Mission Society be a faith mission. What he means by that is that it was self-supported, that he didn't receive outside funding uh, from anybody uh, in the West or even in uh, the British uh, Isles where he came from. He was a huge proponent, uh, Taylor was, of identifying with the culture, being contextually uh, sensitive, dressing like the people, um, even cutting his hair uh, like the people. And by 1895, the China Inland Mission Movement saw a missionary force of 600 people, which was half of the entire missionary presence, the missionary force there in China at the time. And over time, the China Inland Mission Society served over 6,000 missionaries. But it wasn't just men who saw the modern missions movement come to fruition, but also great women that were called out to reach the least reached lands and the least reached people. Lottie Moon uh, probably the most well-known female uh, missionary. While only standing four foot three, she wasn't a giant, physically speaking, and yet her impact across China was monumental. She came to faith at the age of 18, lived in Virginia, and she came to faith through reading none other than Ann Judson's biography. So again, seeing how really uh, faithful living, faithful discipling, even through um, the biographical sketch of one's life, had led another uh, to the mission field. John Broadness, who was one of the founders of Southern Seminary, was actually influential in uh, steering Lottie Moon to the mission field. And she was appointed in 1873 by the Southern Baptist Convention's Foreign Mission Board, now known as the International Mission Board. She, along with her sister Edmonia, um, they taught in schools and made many evangelistic trips into China's interior to share the gospel with women and girls. Uh, She was a faithful uh, teacher in those schools, Uh, in a time in which it was probably unheard of that women would be sent to the mission field, particularly single women like herself. And to that point, she was quoted as saying, what we need in China is more workers. The harvest is very great. The laborers owe so few. I think your idea is correct that a young man should ask himself, not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. It was Lottie's... Uh, Ambition to see that 200 villages be visited every three months as she faithfully poured her life out for the Chinese people. She saw, much like Hudson Taylor, the importance of identifying with the people that she was trying to minister to, adopting their language, adopting their food, adopting their dress. Again, always to be able to relate uh, to the people that she was trying to reach. And she died at the age of, of 72 on Christmas Eve of 1912. She refused to eat during her last days so that food could be portioned out to those who needed it even more so than her. Her remains actually were cremated and sent to Japan because she didn't have enough money to even have her own body sent back to the United States. And yet, I think it's really neat to think about the fact of why would she? I mean, for the fact that she gave her life for those people and that her body be laid to rest there in that same region of the world where she tirelessly and selflessly gave her life uh, for those people. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we, as Southern Baptist, as University Baptist Church, more specifically give uh, each Christmas goes to support the work of the International Mission Board, that, what was formerly known as the Foreign Mission Board, and it supports many of our own supported workers, Joshua and Kayla, in the deserts of Africa, uh, Grace uh, Rivers in East Asia, as uh, we launch into that new partnership there in that part of the world, Travis and Beth Burkhalter in Columbia, Samantha Burgess, who's getting ready to be sent out to the Czech Republic uh, later this year, and over 3,000 other workers with the IMB. Amy Carmichael uh, was another faithful uh, female missionary. She was born in Northern Ireland and served in India among children. And yet I think, just to pause as we kind of conclude some brief biographical sketches and snapshots of these faithful men and women, You know, we want to look to them certainly as heroes. And yet, they were sinners just like us. And so, their cross-cultural ministry is no greater than ours. The calling or the setting apart that God placed upon their lives and their faithfulness to the gospel ministry should be no more honored than those who stay to send. They are called to fulfill that missionary mandate, that Great Commission calling, just like we are. It's just to what place and to what people God has set them apart uh, to serve among, as it is considering where God has called us to, where he has set us apart, to whom he has called us, and to where he has called us. Um, and will we do the same? Any questions uh, as we kind of conclude that first point on the great men and women of the modern missions movement? All right. All right. Second we're going to see uh, Second we'll see uh, great movements within that modern missions movement. First, we're going to look at the indigenous principle. Uh, what comes to mind for those that maybe aren't uh, as uh, well-versed in maybe mission circles, what comes to mind when you think about the indigenous principle? Any thoughts? If we can get a mic to. Indigenous principle. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thelma, I'm glad you asked. So, the indigenous principle, when we think about this in missions terms, it was actually a term that was first coined uh, by two men, Henry Venn and Rufus Anderson. It's actually a horticultural term meaning that a plant can survive best in its natural soil and its natural environment. And so there are actually three marks you see there that kind of set the indigenous principle apart. First is self-supporting. That is that we want to be able to support from within rather rather than from without. Second, we want to be self-governing. That is we want to raise up and train indigenous leaders. And third, we want to be self-propagating. That is we want to plant new churches. So self-supporting, supporting supporting from within, self-governing, raising up indigenous leaders, and then self-propagating, planting new churches. And so the larger principle known as the indigenous principle um, is that a church can best thrive in its new culture when it reflects that particular culture that it's planted in, but then also as it's faithful to the biblical parameters that God has set forth in his word for what a church is to look like and, and who she is to be. So that is one particular movement that kind of set the modern missions movement apart from other movements in the past. Second, we see the student volunteer movement. Uh, This movement was actually uh, birthed out of Cambridge by a group of guys known as the Cambridge Seven. Uh, They, like many of their forerunners before them, uh, gave their lives uh, to the Great Commission. Uh, Many of them gave their lives particularly to China, guys like C.T. Studd, Robert Wilder, John Mott, And while their uh, scope of missions uh, focused itself around the student volunteer movement or um, really college or university work, uh, one of the downfalls really of the student volunteer movement was that it didn't learn from many of the missiological principles um, that the first era had laid, really kind of that coastlands era. Uh, An example of this would be uh, going back, uh, people that were a part of the student volunteer movement, would go back and pastor churches where there had already been given uh, leadership by indigenous leaders. And so you would have people from uh, the West, uh, so to speak, going back in and, and pastoring these churches where indigenous uh, pastors had already kind of established uh, a light lighthouse or a lamppost uh, there. And yet that strategy, among others, slowly righted itself as they uh, saw the need to be able to raise up indigenous faithful leaders. And so that uh, is really the student volunteer movement uh, was birthed out of out of a university uh, work in sending students uh, to the mission field. Also, we see uh, not only the indigenous principle and the student volunteer movement, but also mission sending agencies. Um, there were 200 agencies, among many of which were Protestant agencies, by the year 1800. And they, those agencies comprised over 25,000 foreign missionaries. And yet, uh, the 20th century was really marked by a, a um, continual movement of missionary activity which can be really attributed to several things. one being continued improvement in transportation. Uh, so we move away from you know sailing on boats which would take weeks, if not months, um, to get to, to places. Uh, technology, obviously, modern medicine, volunteerism, as you can see uh, coming off of the student volunteer movement, globalization, realizing uh, that uh, the world was really becoming more flat, uh, so to speak, uh, being able to move uh, about from place to place, and seeing various things transcend culture. And also studies in anthropology and linguistics uh, kind of came out of that as well. And yet I think one of the things that we need to think about as we consider some of the principles that come out of the indigenous principle, the student volunteer movement, uh, and even the mission sending agencies, is that we need to come out of missions, kind of, I read an article just yesterday about what is the first rule of missions. And the writer of this article said that the first rule of missions really is humility. Humility. You know, we in the West oftentimes go into missions thinking that we have all the answers because we have all the resources. And yet, large forces of missionary activity are actually um, being in mission forces in terms of people are being sent out in places like the global, Global South the global east. And we need to think about the fact that as we raise up gospel-centered and faithful pastors and seek to plant faithful churches, that oftentimes that may not come from the west, but it may come from within places like the global south and the global east to be able to see that um, people in those places have just as much to do about living out the work and carrying out the work of the Great Commission as do we. And so we need to go in and certainly help train them where training is needed. We need to help raise them up where that is needed as well, and yet then also have the freedom to be able to release them, um, to kind of be that skeleton, if you will, but then also or that scaffolding, and then to be able to take that down and to step back and let them lead. And also remember, as we think about even mission sending agencies, that the agency is only as beneficial as the worker and the work is on the field. Or, excuse me, as... It's only as beneficial for the worker and the work as the church is to send out and support its its best. Let me say that again. The agency is only as beneficial to the work and to the worker on the field as the local church is to send and support its best. The agency, take for instance the IMB, can certainly support and supplement resources, but the church is called really to do the rigorous work of assessing those whom she sends out such that they are sending out their very best. Because it's really the local church that is the one um, that is called in Scripture to send out people and to give accountability. You see that in Paul and Barnabas as they were sent out by the church in Antioch then to then be able to come back and to report to that church uh, the work to which they were sent to do. And so that accountability structure uh, was in place. Uh, We're in the process of doing that now uh, with uh, two of our own, Stephen and Susanna Gilstrap. Uh, We've been given kind of the keys to assessment from the IMB. Um, so to speak we've been kind of given some tools with which to be able to um, more adequately adequately assess not only the gilstrap's calling but also their readiness to go to the field as they're seeking opportunities to uh, serve alongside the burke halters in columbia uh, so you can be praying for us as we uh, go about that work so that's really the gr- some of the great movements of the modern missions movement any questions on that section One of the incredible things, I think, uh, as we think about even the student volunteer movement, I mean, it has ramifications even today. I mean, you you think about even college students uh, that have the opportunity uh, to go to the mission field, that we have the opportunity even in a university town to be able to see uh, college students go on short-term missions and then to be able to see kind of that trajectory uh, of them move not only from short-term trips, then to longer uh, stints. Uh, We've seen that even with uh, folks sitting even in our midst, Samantha Burgess, uh, Ellen Burns, who have gone on short-term mission trips and then have gone even on midterm stints with uh, the journeyman program, hands-on, and then uh, many of whom are then being sent out uh, to longer-term service. And so uh, just pray for that, even as you think about uh, university students returning back to campus this week, uh, that we as a local church would take the advantage and the opportunity to be able to uh, pour into them and to be able to see them sent out. Uh, Also to that, too, I think, just the opportunity to, to see international students reach with the gospel with you know close to 1500 students from 120 different countries um, here at the university of arkansas and the opportunity that is ours to be able to reach them uh, with the gospel without even having to hop on a plane to go to those nations uh, to be able to impact them uh, with the gospel so uh, you can certainly take advantage of those opportunities as they avail themselves to you Nancy, you had a question
2: just going to have a clarification. You mentioned the global south and the global sure. east. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about the, like the southern hemisphere southern he- and uh, the eastern, eastern hemisphere, hemisphere. Mm-hmm. where more and more missionaries are coming right. from those countries and, and going
0: out? Yes. Okay. So global south, I mean, places like Brazil, um, global east, places like even South Korea. I think South Korea may even have uh, the most missionaries by number that are being sent out. Uh, and the reality, too, is that many of those from the global south and global east are even being sent to the United States. Uh, some studies have shown that the United States is probably the third least reached country um, in the world. Um, 75% of uh, the United States would be considered lost and um, without Christ. So considering even the mission field, that is right among us.
2: Ryan, would... Uh, Ryan right here. Um, so how would the parachurches, such as Stumo and Crew and some of those... Would that be a part of this or come out of this type yeah. of movement?
0: Or? Yeah, I would probably probably say so. As far as the student volunteer movement, I wouldn't say it was maybe a direct one to one correlation, but certainly kind of kind of offshoots. I think where you see a lot of parachurch ministry uh, kind of come about or be birthed is when they saw the local church not doing what the local church was called to do, and so certainly uh, where parachurch ministry is helpful is where they're able to come alongside the church and to support support the church in certain areas. Uh, and yet they're able to give more focused kind of attention in, in particular areas or maybe at particular places. I mean, you think about student mobilizations right. uh, work particularly in, in India, right. and yet I, I don't think that that means that we just um, shuffle all of our ministry off right. to uh, parachurch ministries, um, mm-hmm. but certainly um, partner alongside those that are going to help and link arms and partner with the local church and yet see that it is our role as the local church to be about the work of the Great Commission. That okay. Christ has called the local church to that, mm-hmm. uh, not a parachurch mm-hmm. uh, ministry. So. so as a college
1: student, I hear a lot of um, arguments about when the church historically has used um, missions as an excuse to imperialize or um, spread really that own that country's influence rather than actually the church's influence um, for example in imperializing Africa or Central America um, what's what's a good response or what's a good thing to keep in mind as they're just as we get bombarded with those messages and are told you know like
0: missions are evil versus missions are good what what, what should sure. we keep in mind I think just pointing them back to the scriptures you know to show them that uh, it is Really, as we'll look at here in a moment, I mean, God is God is a missionary God. You know, He has even sent Christ um, to save us, to redeem us, and then has sent us out um, to proclaim that gospel message. And so, I think pointing them back to even that, in terms of who God is and His nature and His character, and yet then also um, for the fact that then, as He has commissioned us, uh, He has done so with the fact that, I mean, you take for instance even Paul. I mean, Paul didn't go and just stay and and try to imperialize. Those places that he was planting churches. Rather, it was his desire to indigenize, if you will, and to raise up uh, locals from, from there to be those leaders and then in turn for them to plant churches to be able to reach their own people. I mean, Romans 15, you know, his desire is not that he would um, build upon somebody else's foundation that's already been laid, but rather to go to places that are unreached and, and least reached, such that the gospel will go even beyond those places where it already uh, has gained a foothold.
1: Hey, Ryan, can I make a comment on that? Sure back here um, for, first off, you know historical missionaries were also products of their time, so what you know their missionary work was in the context of colonialism and uh, especially british imperialism so uh, and and the uh, intent and the motives of missionaries did not always mirror the intent and motives of the um, of the different commercial companies that. Uh, went into foreign countries to to bring their resources back to Britain or to France etc. Second, there, there's been a study done, uh, I believe the author's name is Robert Woodbury, there's several Woodburys in the missions uh, research world, but Robert Woodbury did a study a few years back that actually showed that countries where missionaries were very active are better developed today and have uh, better social structures, better infrastructure uh, and such, so i uh, uh i I believe that the the critical argument against missionaries uh historically as being a a negative part of imperialism and colonialism as being an entirely negative uh, portion of history I think that that's very biased and that there's empirical evidence that there's specific evidence that uh, runs contrary to that criticism so just to put a uh, put a tool in your tool belt for answering those. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I didn't see who an, who asked the question. But, yeah, that's a tool in your tool belt to respond to those criticisms.
0: Great. Thanks, John. Any further question or comment before we move to our last section there? Debbie?
2: Do you think part of that thinking comes from the idea that's come up in the last year that all cultures are equal and one is not better than the other. They're, you know, if you eat your relatives, you know, it's just as good as
0: any other, so. Probably so, and I would say probably too, just even some of the, um, you know, going in, as we talked about a minute ago, in terms of Westerners going in and feeling like they've got um, kind of a leg up, so to speak, and so probably even some of that uh, persona, has been cast into why people feel like the church is imperializing those rather than uh, in almost marginalizing those in other, in other countries. Um, and so... All right. All right, let's move to our final section. Great eras uh, fulfilling a great mission. So we've looked at great men and women of the modern missions movement. Uh, we've looked at also those movements... Um, themselves. And now we're going to look at uh, three different eras marked by these men and carried out through these movements, all leading towards the Great Commission being accomplished. Uh, If you think about really this point is kind of peering back at a 30,000 foot overview. Um, And all three of these eras certainly had an expressed interest in in reaching the least reached or the unconverted, as Kerry would call them. Uh, But we're going to look at each era and see kind of how they more specifically define Um, reaching unreached peoples and unreached people groups. You know, certainly any great era doesn't happen in a vacuum, uh, but rather should be grounded in Scripture. Uh, Revelation 7-9, you know, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne one day. And many people have uh, sought to define what is a people group. As we think about reaching least reached peoples or people groups, I think we need to kind of take a step back and, and understand What is a people group? And kind of more of a technical definition would be a significantly large sociological grouping of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity for one another because of their shared language, religion, ethnicity, residence, occupation, class, or caste, situation, or a combination of these things. Let me repeat that again. I don't expect you to initially get every word of that, but a significantly large sociological grouping of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity for one another because of their shared language, religion, ethnicity, residence, occupation, class or caste, situation, or a combination of these things. You know, certainly from an evangelism standpoint, from a gospel sharing standpoint, it's the largest possible group with which the gospel can spread in planting viable indigenous churches, that is, national churches, without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. So planting the largest possible group with which we can plant a church within indigenously without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. So then as we move from a people group to an unreached people group, that is more uh, simply defined as a uh, people group in which 2% or less of the population is evangelical Christian. And yet, I think it's important for us to pause and think about the fact that that is really an extra biblical kind of tag that we put on an unreached people group, or a UPG as I'll uh, refer to in short, because we have misdefined really what it means to be reached. Um, Oftentimes we think of reached as just we have evangelized them, Uh, but uh, but what the Bible calls us to in terms of reaching um, all nations or all peoples is that we see disciples made who in turn reach their own people and make disciples and in turn then plant Indigenous healthy churches. And so we have left many unreached people groups unreached because we have uh, not adequately discipled them to reach their own and seen churches planted among them. So, as we look even to that grounding in scripture of the biblical basis for reaching unreached people groups, I think, as I alluded to a minute ago, we have to think about God being a missionary God. He had a redemptive purpose and plan in mind even before the foundations of the world were laid to reach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You know, we see even after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis 3.15, that first reference to the gospel, um, that uh, this one would come uh, who would crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent would bruise his heel. This rescuer, this redeemer would come about um, to bring about redemption of peoples from every tribe, tongue and nation. And so from that point on, God's people whom he had set apart, Israel, would be a blessed nation in order to, a blessed people, in order to be a blessing to the other nations around them. And the church today in the New Testament is then commissioned and called to go reach the nations with that same gospel. And so let's take a a cursory glance of really what is known as the mission of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So first with the Old Testament, you see there on your outline. Uh, Israel's role really began in Genesis 12 when God set apart one man, Abraham. Actually, let me back up. In Genesis 11, um, God, uh, you see, scatters the people after the building of the Tower of Babel. They want to create a name for themselves. They want to create a city for themselves. They want to create a tower for themselves in order to get to God, to be like God. And yet, God really, in his grace, yet also in his judgment, um, scatters the people and makes nations out of them. He confuses their language. They all were one people with one language, and yet he scatters them and makes many nations, many languages. And yet then, Genesis 12, he calls out one man whom he would bless, bless he and his family, and bless the people whom Abraham would represent to be a blessing in turn to the nations. And so we see uh, nations there in Genesis 12 is better translated really as families of the earth. Um, it's a smaller group, more like a clan or a tribe. And we see that God led his people then from Genesis 12 going on into into Exodus, um, led his people through Egypt, through the literal Exodus, into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. And he gave them the promised land as a way really to bring them glory, to set them apart as his special people in his relationship with them among all other nations. And so... Listen to these verses. I've noted them up here, uh, just because we'll run through them pretty quickly. Um, that talk about God's desire to be glorified among the peoples of the earth. Psalm ninety-six, three through four. God calls for His glory to be proclaimed among all nations. Psalm one, seventeen, verse one. God calls what the Greek uh, literally says there, "Pantata Ethne," the same word used in Matthew twenty-eight in the Great Commission that all peoples of the earth are to praise God. Isaiah fifty-two, fifteen. Maintains that all peoples, including kings of the earth, will be in awe of God as their Redeemer. Isaiah fifty five, five makes clear that God's call of salvation will be heard and received. Psalm eighty-six nine guarantees that God will convert the nations to worship and glorify his name. Psalm sixty-seven expresses great confidence that all nations will receive salvation and be blessed. And then Psalm eighteen, eighty-seven and one hundred eight, the psalmist delights to declare God's glory. Among the nations, and so God is to be praised, he's to be enjoyed, he 's to be feared among all gods and among all the nations, and yet Christ came to bring about that rescue, that redemption. we see this idea of being sent out this great commission being established uh, in the new testament john seventeen twenty um, says that God will use the preached word to proclaim the gospel among all peoples luke twenty four another recounting of the great commission. Um, is part of God's overall redemptive purposes. That famous passage in Acts 1-8, that we are to be our, uh, God's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Obviously, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, people groups, not just nation states, are to be reached through disciple-making. Romans 10 and 15, as I noted earlier, Paul confirms that this gospel is to go forth to the least reached, even all the way to the unreached. And then Revelation 5, Revelation 7, 8, and 9. All those nations and languages and peoples will come together once again as one people, as that redeemed people of God. And yet, that is that is the biblical basis that served to ground people like William Carey, Lottie Moon, Hudson Taylor, Adniram Judson, even um, us today as we go out with this great commission, with this gospel. And yet, looking at then really this third era, this frontier era, reaching the unreached from the New Testament up until now, I mean, really all the way uh, from the coastlands to the inlands to the frontier. We see uh, really all the way back from the early church that missions didn't just stop with the apostles at Acts eight, and then pick back up with William Carey. Rather, the early church saw it as important. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea uh, said that, uh, had a great emphasis on reaching the unreached. Uh, he said that they, um, that is the apostles even... The forerunners um, after them were content to lay the foundations of faith among these foreign peoples. They then appointed other pastors and committed them to the responsibility for building up those whom they had brought to faith. Uh, Men like St. Patrick uh, sacrificed his life for the very people uh, that sought to enslave him in Ireland. We see in the Reformation, John Calvin uh, had a passion to reach uh, the people of Brazil. William Tyndale, the first translator of the English Bible, had a great love for the Turkish people. Uh, we see even the, with the Moravians, uh, they were called to send people to, to the West Indies and to Greenland. And then even uh, coming up into to North America uh, with the establishment uh, of uh, the colonial period in, in the Puritans, uh, they came to North America out of a desire really to reach the Native Americans, uh, guys like David Brainerd uh, and then even the Men of the Great Awakening. And yet, uh, reaching the unreached through the modern missions movement really took these three kind of eras of the coastlands with William Carey being the front runner there, the inlands with Hudson Taylor, and then the frontier really kind of came about through two guys that we'll look at here in a minute, Donald McGavern and Cam Townsend. Um, so to kind of just briefly sketch out that uh, era from 1792 to 1910 of the coastlands, You know, it wasn't really until William Carey came on the scene that Protestant missions gained steam and that mission agencies grew rapidly. Uh, We see really uh, this partnership between the church and the ones whom they are sending out um, taking uh, fruition on the field. Uh, Really kind of um, four hinges to hang your hat on. This idea of those who were sent out as pioneers to kind of trailblaze, if you will, to make first contact among the unreached peoples. And then we have the parenting stage in which we would go forth to train indigenous leaders to raise them up, to equip them to the gospel work. Third, we would partner. That is that we would kind of watch as they do, so to speak. And then third, then we would serve as a participant. That's that kind of um, skeleton or scaffolding where we kind of step back and let those whom we have raised up and equipped um, take on the work and the lead for themselves. The inland's. Uh, with Hudson Taylor, really as the front runner, as I mentioned earlier, the China Inland mission movement founded by him, he reached all eleven inland china Chinese provinces and founded really out of the China inland mission movement forty uh, mission agencies that would would come on the scene as a result of uh, really the uh, strategy and uh, how Hudson Taylor founded and, and formed that China inland mission movement. Uh, we would see forty other mission agencies kind of take on that same identity and then third moving from the coastlands to the inlands and then to the frontier. This is where guys like Cam Townsend and Donald McGavern came on the scene. Cam Townsend was a missionary to Guatemala, uh, and he really came on the scene during the inlands era, and yet he ran into people there in Guatemala who said uh, that they could not understand even the mainland dialect because they had specific dialects of their own. He said that many would come up to him and say, in effect, if your God is so smart, why doesn't he speak our language? And so that's why Cam Townsend uh, was led then to found Tyndale Bible Translators, focusing on reaching unreached people groups through Bible translations. Um, Hans and Stacy Hutchins, uh, who are two of our uh, direct support partners, serve in Central Asia. Uh, They're actually uh, with us stateside for the next uh, eight months or so. Uh, look forward to having them uh, share in a Sunday evening service. Uh, But Hans and Stacey actually uh, are a part of uh, Wycliffe, uh, not Tyndale Bible Translation, but Wycliffe Bible Translation. Um, And then Donald McGavern. So Cam Townsend, Donald McGavran were a part of uh, Reaching the Frontier. Donald McGavran was actually considered the uh, father of the church growth movement. Uh, And he was really the one that kind of coined the term unreached people groups. Um, And for those of you that uh, know anything about unreached people groups, many of those are found within the 1040 window. Um, So 10 degrees latitude to 40 degrees latitude, where the largest major world religions are found, Muslim uh, or Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. There are 11,747 people groups in the known world today. There are actually larger figures than that, depending upon how you kind of break down um, people groups based upon uh, sociological markers, uh, linguistic markers. But then of those 11,000, 7,031 of those are unreached people groups. That is 2% or less evangelical Christian among them. And then of those 7,000 unreached people groups, 3,000 of them are unreached and unengaged. That means there is no um, effort to reach those people. There is, uh, there is nobody, no mission agency presently working among them today. 3,186 people. And so then it should come as no surprise, as you see there under uh, reaching the unreached through the modern missions movement, uh, letter D there on your outline, that there are great barriers, uh, letter E, to reaching the unreached. They're unreached for a reason. And some of those barriers, just quickly, are this idea of a harvest mentality. Uh, Where there is fruit, resources often are given in those particular areas. And yet, for guys like William Carey, for guys like Adoniram Judson, where they faithfully labored for seven, eight years before they saw conversions, um, even in present day, where fruit is often less, at least in man-made definitions, resources uh, have often not been dispersed to those areas. Certainly, there's also another barrier in, in the fact that we only know one way to do church oftentimes. What I mean by that is that 80% of the world are oral learners, and so we have to rethink how it is that we are transmitting The gospel message, not just through written communication, but also through oral communication. Third, there's often security and persecution, not only in us going to reach the unreached, but also for those who convert uh, to Christianity from those major world religions. Um, They're taking, really counting the cost um, of their very lives in converting to Christianity. Climate, geography, uh, we go to places uh, where the terrain is very hot, very humid, very desolate, We also go to places uh, where it's high altitude. uh, And so oftentimes that's why those unreached people groups are hard to reach uh, because of geography, because of climate. Also, there's expense uh, involved, not not only in going, but then also considering as many are called to reach the unreached, how is it then that they are living among their own people that they're trying to reach? Are they living above their means, or are they living within their means or under their means? Are they doing like guys like, Hudson Taylor did, uh, women like Lottie Moon did, in seeking to live uh, contextually appropriate lives and yet gospel faithful lives, in living uh, appropriately in a contextual way that will help serve and bridge in reaching their people. And then finally, personal maintenance. What I mean by that is uh, that we are not sending folks out solo as lone rangers, that we're sending people out in teams, but also sending them. um, with great support as the local church. Once again, just the clearing called the local church, that God has put that call on the local church to do the work of sending faithfully, supporting faithfully, and then receiving those folks back faithfully uh, to encourage, to build up, uh, and to see long-term workers not just get to the field, but also to stay on the field. And yet, I think it's important to remember that these barriers, whether they have come about just through natural means or whether they are man-made barriers, That God still intends to use us as his people, as his messengers, to carry out the Great Commission. So as we conclude, uh, here are just some thoughts. As we think about great men, great movements, and this Great Commission um, that we are called to make disciples among all nations. You know, from Carrie until today, even as far back as the Garden of Eden and the call of Abraham, God is at work among the nations. And that should excite us. Really, that should... We should go out with great fervor and with great urgency, knowing that God is about redeeming and rescuing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. When the gospel has gone forth, he's done, it's done so through the local church. Again, I think we touched on that quite a bit this morning. Healthy Missions, third, has been seen as a result of the preaching of God's word. And within that, then, theology matters. Um, who we present as God um, matters in training up indigenous leaders who don't have the means of receiving maybe formal theological education. And so the importance of going and training up uh, indigenous pastors and church leaders. Healthy theology then should lead to healthy ecclesiology. So who God is and how he has called us to plant healthy, um, faithful local churches should then ground how we do that, which in turn then should ground our missiology or how we go about missions, that church planting and supporting the work of healthy churches should be uh, an end goal of what our mission strategy is about. And then church planting should be the result of healthy and faithful evangelism. should be the end goal. Also, we must consider healthy contextualization. That is, keeping the gospel message um, and the, uh, central as that central message, and yet knowing that the vehicle through which that gospel is carried, namely through language, may change. Uh, and so learning the language such that we can more faithfully... Um, transmit the gospel, both through the spoken word and through the written word. And then finally, the history of missions is a history of sacrifice. I think we've seen that even as we've looked at the biographical sketches of of these men and women, even on up until the present day, even as we uh, talk to and uh, engage with our own supported workers, knowing that there is great sacrifice um, that they incur. And yet that sacrifice pales in comparison um, to the fact that Christ himself has sacrificed his life uh, and so, no sacrifice is too great um, then uh, to carry that great commission forth and to see uh, the gospel made known and churches planted among all peoples. Any comments, concluding questions? Vicky uh,
2: thanks for mentioning about the international students last night. Um, the Burgesses, and the Johnsons, and I hosted students from uh, Japan, Nigeria, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Colombia, and Belize. Uh, We had Hindus, Muslims, professing Christians, and atheists, and we just have a golden opportunity here, and I appreciate your mentioning that. Absolutely.
0: Um, well, I was wondering if you could comment on, uh, like, the church's attitude towards missions between, like, 350 to 1500 A.D., um, because, like, on your th- uh, you talked about the early church up to uh, Eusebius and then in the Reformation, but in that period, between those two, um, the church became tied to the state in Europe, uh, and in general, like, that's when the Crusades happened. Um, I don't know, like, what was the church's attitude, either European or other, too? I mean, the church isn't just there. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that um, obviously you see it. I mean, you see even what uh, sent Carey um, to the lengths of what he did in terms of writing that that treatise, that inquiry. You know, based upon even just theological things that were kind of grounding the church, not grounding in terms of foundation, but grounding the church in terms of not going out uh, as as much as they as much as they should. Uh, and so, I think it was a case that. Um, you really kind of hit almost a plateau, so to speak. Um, you know, they maybe saw the need, but maybe didn't put feet um, to it in as much so. So that's kind of the short short answer without delving into too many specifics or people in that regard. Ryan? Yeah. I'm back here. Uh,
1: in Matthew, I think, uh, 24, it talks about that when the gospel has been preached to all nations, then the end will come. And that's kind of, in a lot of circles, kind of tied with, you mentioned Revelation 7, the every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the conversation about people groups and counting down this number. And sure. Can you talk to us a little bit about, like, um, what that means and how that works and maybe even how that drives missions at UBC or maybe how it shouldn't drive? I don't sure. kind of where your thoughts are on that.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a case of, again, in terms of Theologically speaking, I mean, I would probably take, personally speaking, a, a position more in line with a guy named George Eldon Ladd, um, who would, um, if you go on the Gospel Coalition site, uh, he's quoted as saying, I mean, that it's not for us to determine when Christ will return. Uh, only God the Father knows that, uh, and at which point um, it is the appointed time for Christ to return, he will. And so, uh, regardless of how we as in terms of man, define unreached people groups and put a number to that. Um, that's that's man-made. You know, uh, once all the peoples of the world have been reached according to God's economy, uh, then Christ will return. It's not for us to know when that is going to happen. I mean, it's similarly speaking to um, just even that illustration that you in your mind's eye are thinking about in Acts Acts one when the apostles are standing there just looking up into the sky. And, you know, the angel says to them, I mean, or the, you know, the angel says to them, why are you, why are you standing there gazing up into the sky? You know, Christ will return in the same way that he first came. Now you go and carry out this great, this great commission. And so I think more than being worried and wrapped up in in all the numbers, just being faithful to what God has called us to. And yet, understanding that, yes, uh, we have been called to take the gospel to all um, people's tribes and languages. And so we do need to put a stress on Reaching unreached peoples, um, and yet be faithful to that, to that people or to those peoples, and to that place where God has called us to, um, and to be faithful to, to see them reached and, and know that Christ, Christ will return at the appointed time. So, does that help? Help answer?
2: Yeah, I just have a couple comments, just one picking up off of uh, Vicky's comment, too, how neat it would be if every family, if we just look at one international in the course of a year, you know, I mean, just think how many we could meet if all, you know, gospel, Bible-believing churches did that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could just probably reach this entire campus, and, and we've got a Hispanic community, we've got the Marshallese, and on and on, on it goes. So, I mean, that's here they are literally at our doorstep. The second thing is kind of going back <clears throat> to um, something that um, this young man here and Jonathan also commented on with, you know, I guess the philosophy that, okay, you know, sending missionaries is kind of evil thing. Well, they're obviously with the conquering, uh, you know, England and the nations, they did go out and they obviously did very, you know, horrible things with horrible go- goals and motives. Mm-hmm. However, God used that and those kind of opening up those countries and even to the founding of our own country the, the the then christians and missionaries did go and they sharing the gospel and that was a really good thing obviously if you're teaching you want people to know the bible you have to educate them so schools were formed you have you know there's a the whole there we were compassionate as far as the whole medical hospitals being you know built and and just even one specific example and reading about the life of Amy Carmichael, if you know that story, one of her big things was she found, you know, with the, these Hindu temples with these little girls were brought and they were prostitutes from, I don't know, you know, four and five and up. Well, she was, of course, horrified by that. And she literally in her lifetime, I forget, it's something like 600. It's a huge number that she rescued and, and then, you know, did schools and the whole thing. And I know personally missionaries in Africa, too, children born, Were um, if they're handicapped or like twins or any you know they're literally put out for the lions to eat. So in the gospel message going forth, people are you know the compassion of Christ is shown. You know many children and people are rescued as well as whole mentality. So wherever Christianity goes with true Christianity, obviously not with some you know side benefit of sure you know making money, but. They're really, you have to know, if you, that's where you need to read the biographies of our, our missionaries. Mm-hmm. Know what they've done. Know how they have changed for the good yeah. of the places that they went. And I think today we're kind of the mindset, well, U.S., everything is bad, bad, bad. And there's some truth to that. But you got to separate
0: mm-hmm.
2: the gospel and the Christians and what they've done in those countries from the other. Right. So Absolutely. that's really important to read, yeah. and that's great. That's yeah. a
0: good word. Let me pray and uh, close this out.